My name is Forrest Coleman. I'm a postdoc in Stephen Smith's lab of the Molecular and Cellular Physiology Department here at Stanford, and welcome to the second season of NeuroTalk, the interview series for Stanford University's weekly neuroscience seminar brought to you by Neurite West. This week's guest is Dr. Jung Zhang, an associate professor of biology at Harvard University. Thanks for joining us today, Professor Zhang. Thank you. Am I pronouncing your name correctly? Yeah. Okay, good. So first, could you just tell us a little bit about how you grew up and when you first became interested in science? I grew up in China, mm -hmm. and actually both of my parents went to university to study engineer. So there's always science in my conversation with my parents all, all the time in my childhood. It's, a, it's not something that I really thought about. It just happened. And I started high school in, in the early 90s. And then science is actually quite a big focus in Chinese education. Yeah, you have to decide what you want to do very soon, yeah? Yeah, exactly. Actually, at the end of high school, we had to choose um, yeah, what's uh, going to be our major Yeah, in college. And then so that was the time I decided um, I should go for science. And actually, I thought about studying physics for a long time. So that's what my father majored. But then uh, later on, I, I heard uh, and then read that there is a lot more unknown question and then much less defined um, question in biology. And that seemed to attract me more. And so that's why. So you began your more sort of formal scientific training as a graduate student in Martin Shalfi's lab at Columbia, where you studied the development of touch receptor neurons in C. elegans. So how did you become interested in this question? So that was in 1996, I studied uh, my graduate uh, school. And then so I had uh, quite limited uh, research experience before that. I worked a little bit on molecular biology of transcription and a little bit on biochemistry of structure and function of insulin. But I was always interested in neuroscience and I, want, uh, I wanted a system that's tractable to me. So when I look at the Marty's system, it has a couple of things that attracted me. So first, they, they started as a pretty well-defined behavior. So yeah, when um, they delivered a gentle touch to animals, they would respond by speeding up a reversal. And, and then also, like they, they have identified the uh, sensory neurons that mediate this response. Mm -hmm. They have also mapped neural circuits mapped downstream interneuron and multineuron, the innervate muscle that would generate behavior response. And at the time, they also know quite a bit of genes that control the development of those neurons. And then they, they can use a cell-specific marker to express GFP so that we can visualize the development as well as anatomy of the cells. They just have, so they have a behavior, they have a circuit, and then so they have a ways to visualize those neurons. They just seem to be such intuitive system. I feel I could be able to understand it. Mm -hmm. So you had a sort of physicist draw to the sort of simplified, you know, I can see all the things, you know. Yes, yeah. exactly. I could see all the things. Yeah, it's, it's mysterious for me to imagine what's happening in a test tube, but I feel more satisfied if I can see something in front of me. Yeah, yeah. So uh, you continued working with C. elegans uh, as a postdoc with Corey Bargman uh, while she was at UCSF and then later uh, at Rockefeller, where you started studying uh, olfactory learning in the worms. So in 2005, you published a really interesting paper where you showed that following an exposure to a pathogenic bacteria, uh, the C. elegans seemed to be able to remember the bacteria's odor and would learn to avoid regions that carried that odor showing that the worms are capable of associated learning. And importantly, you also showed that this learning is dependent upon serotonin. So 
Could you describe how you came to start doing these experiments? Was it obvious that C. elegans could do this kind of learning? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I was uh, uh, studying sulfate determination, right, uh, in the graduate school. And then, so, and then uh, by studying the C. elegans system, I realized that there's something very important in this system. So we know the wiring diagram. And then so we know how exactly those neurons are connected at the resolution of the individual synapse. So I feel that it's very important for us to be able to understand how behavior is regulated. So that's why I start, I decided to stay within the elegance field. Although it is the same, same system that I had used before, but I, I, I was very interested to, in understanding behavior. And I feel I have the system for it. So to understand a, a system, one way is to uh, perturb it and then to see the resulting effect. And then so I feel learning a memory is actually one process of like that. So the nervous system is perturbed by experience. And then it is modulated. The change is manifested in the behavior as a learned behavior. So that's why I feel like that, that was the, uh, sort of the, the system I want to develop. So in terms of the worm learning um, bad food, um, I wasn't very surprised. Actually, that's the first couple of the paradigm I tested. It worked out pretty well. Because I think for, some, for animals to learn something, it has to be something that is important for them. Mm -hmm. And then so food, it is like food and reproduction, that's important thing so for these little animals to evolve over millions of years. Also, in a way, to think about if they eat bad things and then um, they learn to avoid it, this is similar to taste aversion that has been found in many animals, right? Yeah. Including humans and fish, cuttlefish and snails. I feel in a way, it's probably a behavior that should be widely spread. And yeah, so... so so if I eat a bad burrito, you know, I learn to avoid that particular taco truck, by, but I feel this sort of upset stomach. So I'm just wondering, do worms also get an upset stomach? Or what are the, what are the mechanisms by which pathogenic bacteria translate to an, an innately aversive stimulus in a worm? Yeah, we do not entirely know. Um, so, so pathogenic bacteria, once they get into worms um, in guts, they will colonize there. And they will release the uh, toxin and also they will launch infection in a semi using similar sets of virulence factor that infect mammals. So there is um, the uh, perturbation of the homeostasis in that process that animal is able to sense. And then so there is a whole set of the genes that the uh, their expression is regulated after the infection. And then so that's the signal so that we are able to see. And of course we can not really ask the question uh, whether the worm feels sick in a similar way that we feel. That we do not know. And then so in terms of the, um, uh, what I found about the serotonin, so what I found is that there is a specific pair of the serotonergic neurons and then their serotonin signaling in that pair is required and insufficient for animal to be able to learn to avoid pathogenic bacteria. And then the uh, serotonin constant seems to be upregulated after infection. And then so this serotonin signal goes through a serotonin-gated chloride channel in to in the interneurons. And then this, this signaling pathway is also required for learning to occur. And so this serotonin-gated chloride channel is quite interesting. Because 
has it is homologous to 5-HT3 receptor in humans. You know, at 5-HT, so, you know, like in humans, although serotonin is uh, a neurotransmitter, but uh, actually more than 90% of serotonin in our body is produced in the intestine. So when we have a stomach stress, intestine are perceived chromosome and cells actually release serotonin. And then 5-HT3 respond to that serotonin signal and then transmit the signal into central nervous system. And that's how we know that we have stomach stress. So you can see the analogy or the parallel that I'm trying to um, um, explain here. So in a way, I feel that the uh, serotonin system that we identified probably carry a quite a deeply conserved signaling function in learning. Which is why some SSRIs give people stomach problems as, as well, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So you've continued this uh, line of research with your own lab. And in 2010, you published a paper showing that naive worms actually prefer the scent of the pathogenic bacteria. And it's only after repeated exposure to that pathogen that they lose this preference. And that this seems not to be due to a rearrangement of a single circuit, but there are actually two completely different circuits, one which mediates this naive preference and then a second one which mediates the learned preference. So could you tell us a little bit about how these two circuits and how you came to understand that uh, that this was so because it doesn't it doesn't seem at all obvious that that's how it should work yeah i think yeah the question yeah you you, yeah, you asked it in a very interesting way um because at the beginning we wanted to understand uh, how the, the underlying circuits looks like there are at least the two possibilities um as you described one is that the same underlying circuits got remodeled the second is that there are two actually um circuits different circuits that are differentially used under different conditions. So we were testing against those possibilities. And then they turned out to be, this is a, a so basically there is an olfactory sensory um, motor circuit that sends the olfactory cues and then transmit those cues into interneuron and motor neurons. And then so that is the naive, what we call naive circuit. It's important for the animal to be able to sense bacterial smell, distinguish them, and then generate response. The second one is the serotonergic circuit. It's the serotonergic neuron that I identified, but we also identified the downstream interneuron and the motor neuron. And then so this modulatory, we call it modulatory circuit or learning circuit, has multiple synaptic connections with the first and naive circuit. And then, so if we um, mark down the function of second circuit by taking the neuron or something, and then so most of the time, either the naive response is only mildly affected or not affected at all, but the animals do not generate or learn the behavior after training. So it is that the second circuit has to be there for learned behavior to manifest. So did you notice this effect right from the beginning, back in your postdoc, that you would see the uh, worms initially start going towards the, the site with the bacteria and then only later avoiding it? or? Oh, we noticed that earlier on. And then so um, uh, in my lab, what we did is, uh, so at the beginning, we used a um, population assay that we can only read out the preference from 100 worms. Mm -hmm. That's one of the points. And then um, later on, um, so in this 2010 paper you mentioned, we're actually collaborating with a collaborator here at Ravi Samuel's lab, and then so we developed an automated assay. And then so we can measure individual animals' preference. So that gave us the ability to map a neural circuit because it can scale up. So you teach a course at Harvard called Genes and Behavior. 
So I'm curious what your approach is for teaching students about the neural regulation of behavior. So I think um, Gene's behavior field um, actually has evolved quite a lot um, recently in these recent years. So in addition to um, like uh, how to say classical genetics, like for example how the Huntington's disease um, gene is mapped right using the association linkage mapping, and then so that's one of the components of my class. I'd like to I'd like students to understand those fundamental principles and how we use it to understand the more complicated trait. It's sort of, you know, the question that I mentioned earlier on is the question that I had when I was in college, but I wasn't satisfied with what we knew then. Yeah, so, so then, yeah, so that's one big component. A second thing is that there is more and more functional approach that people now are using to understand the effect of the gene on the behavior. It's hard to say that one gene Say for example, it's hard to say one gene is important for, for depression. For example, we have to really understand how the molecule encoded by gene acts in the nervous system and the certain context and how it impacts behavior. So I'd like to have students have this integrity idea about genetic effects of the genes like integrating molecules with the neural circuits. So, that's the main thing uh, in my class. Finally, could you just give us a, a brief teaser about what you plan to talk to us in your talk at Stanford? So, for example, if, if you're interested um, in understanding how we can use smaller systems, simpler systems, small animals, to study signaling mechanisms related to more complicated cognitive defects in more complicated cognitive process, such as schizophrenia, you should come to me. <laughs> okay. And, uh, <laughs> We like to end our, our segment with a series of short answer questions. So first, what is your favorite fact about C. elegans? Um, simple. It eats bacterial. It has very modest lifestyle. Very modest lifestyle. <laughs> and if you were uh, to speak to yourself as a graduate student, and not a graduate student in general, but actually speak to yourself, uh, what advice would you give yourself? Speak to what you're interested in. And it better be an important question. <laughs> <laughs> Very threatening to yourself. Uh, so do you remember what the first experiment that you ever did was? Oh, well, actually, I don't. Yeah, so that must be in my college. Uh -huh. Yeah, so something I remember, like I was uh, in a lab uh, doing citral hybridization on, on the plant. Actually, we have to slide those tissues to prepare, and I cut my finger deeply. So that was too bad. <laughs> Versus stimuli are, 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 are easy <laughs> exactly. to remember. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So that's close to my first experiment. <laughs> and finally, what was your most common meal that you made when you were a graduate student? Oh, my goodness. I'm such a bad cook. Rice. Just cooked rice. <laughs> a modest, also a modest lifestyle. Modest yeah. lifestyle. <laughs> yeah. Well, Thank you for speaking with us today, Professor Zhang. Yeah, thank you. And thank you all for listening. We hope you'll join us next week when our guest will be Diana Batista, an assistant professor of cellular and molecular biology at UC Berkeley. NeuroTalk is a production of Neurite West. This episode was produced by Erica Senor, Mark Patalina, and myself. For more information about NeuroTalk and Neurite West, and to read neuroscience articles written by the members of Neurite West, please visit our new website at www.neuroblog.stanford.com. Thank you.